Welcome to uh, episode seven. Episode seven. Can you believe we've we've got there in our alternate one hundred, Ed? Uh, more or less. <laughs> uh, I'm surprised. I'm surprised that we got there this quickly. Yeah, uh, we say quickly. We, we didn't start till like April, um, and then we've kind of gone through a kind of uh, a rapid succession of them, and now we're kind of on the home stretch. Uh, it feels good. Uh, to get there, uh, we've got ten films to talk about uh, this week. Um, they're all excellent, or they wouldn't be on the list. Um, so let's just jump right in uh, after we hear this jingle. The alternate one hundred. Okay, first film on our list. Uh, I don't know; it could be a contender for just straight out most disturbing. Um, we're talking about Takashi Mika's audition. Um, a pretty chilling. He, and he, well, for kind of for, for Takashi Miike, uh, it's probably not his most fucked up film, uh, but it's certainly the one that kind of stays under your skin for the longest. Yeah, it's, it's probably one of his most restrained. Mm. And this is a, um, a film we're talking about being restrained, where a woman keeps a man in a bag with no tongue and no no fingers, and cuts a man's feet off a piano wire. Yeah, it's important to to. Uh, add the word relatively <laughs> in front of more or less everything we say about Takashi Miike, who, uh, for people who aren't aware of his work, is a, a, a insanely prolific Japanese director who, at one point at his peak, was directing something like nine films a year, and now he's slowed down and does maybe three or four because mm. he's, you know, he's getting old. Um, and he's directed a lot of really fucked up stuff like Visitor Q and Ichi the Killer and some less fucked up stuff, but still. Yeah, really viscerally exciting stuff like Thirteen Assassins mm-hmm. and uh, Harry Keary, you know. So he's he's someone who and and some kids' films like uh, Zebra Man, the two Zebra Man films. Uh, he, he's a he's a he's a he's a maverick. He directs pretty much anything. Uh, I'm pretty sure if you just like put a piece of paper in front of him and said uh, and just kind of like scribbled down a basic synopsis, he'd have made the film by the end of the week. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there's just no stopping the man. But audition is. Uh, one of his his in some ways it's one of his craziest because it's a film that has this this uh, switch halfway through it starts out as being a sort of very creepy uh, sort of romantic comedy about sort of a sad sack guy who's looking for a wife and he kind of auditions uh, young women to fulfill that role and uh, in that part it's kind of quite funny but also like I say really creepy and weird because these guys feel like uh, kind of perverts in some way. <laughs> Or people who are just kind of misusing their access to young actresses to uh, fulfil this guy's personal needs, and then the woman that they happen to choose is uh, a complete lunatic. <laughs> mm. And that's putting it mildly. Um, mm. Like I said, the aforementioned tongueless man in bag uh, alarm bells 
should be ringing. But if if the film does anything, it, it kind of certainly uh, made me rethink my approach to uh, snaring women uh, by holding fake auditions. Yeah, you've really got to screen them very well. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think you just add to the questionnaire. Have you got any men in bags? Mm, yeah, yeah. And given that what we talked about seem would seem kind of quite explicitly violent, especially the uh, aforementioned piano wire sequence, um, Mike kind of shows a real deftness of touch of doing that bit, and uh, yeah, makes it kind of completely horrifying with just kind of sound effects, really. And if I think about it, I feel quite ill. As do I right now. It's it's a very sickening film. But I do think that his his approach there of sort of uh, of suggesting rather than showing a lot of the time, which is kind of antithetical to a lot of his other films, is is what makes it so effective. Is that he knows that he could show you this stuff in really explicit and horrible, gory detail, but instead of doing that, he just kind of shows the after effects. And then just shows you just enough to leave you feeling uh, deeply, deeply disturbed and unsettled. Yeah, um, and we we talked about uh, Ring last week, uh, the the kind of original Japanese Ring or Ringu, I believe we should probably call it. Um, audition was part of that kind of like late nineties, early two thousands kind of boom in uh, when the kind of the peak of kind of interest in kind of it's probably extreme Japanese cinema it was probably at its highest. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think in a lot of ways it was probably uh, Mike's breakthrough film. It's certainly the one that gets uh, thrown around a lot as being his kind of masterpiece. And then from that, you know, people discover a lot of his other stuff. But that that was the one that uh, I certainly uh, put him on the map in terms of, uh, for me, when I started getting interested in uh, cinema audition was the one that I heard about the most as being a great film that was also you know if you wanted to see something deeply uh, deeply fucked up mm. it was a good choice yeah and a good choice it is um, it is uh, we might have kind of overplayed it the kind of sickening aspect of it but it is pretty kind of gruesome and grim and kind of horrendous but it is also um, kind of an immaculately kind of constructed thriller uh, it is um, very well put together and a very manipulative film in, in the way that it kind of uh, uh, leads you down certain paths. It, it's paced brilliantly. I think that each revelation is uh, is revealed at exactly the right moment and is placed at the right point in the story and the various uh, investigations that are going on to kind of lead you to the eventual outcome. And then uh, it, it does that great Hitchcockian thing of revealing to the audience what the main character doesn't know mm. quite far in advance. Yeah. You know, we know that she is, uh, that she is uh, insane and deeply dangerous if, for a long time before he does. So it's all about waiting for the other shoe to drop or the other uh, foot to <laughs> get sawn off. <laughs> yeah. I like what you've done there. Yeah. Unintentional bit of wordplay there. Badly bungled as well, yeah. but you know that that is that is what is what makes it so great is it does use uh, tension and suspense in, in a in a really compelling and uh, and uh, wonderful way. Yeah, compelling, wonderful, and sickening. Uh, that's Takashi Mika's audition. Um, our next film on the list um, uh, is a film kind of touched upon in a few, in a couple of our past episodes. Um, we're talking about uh, Walter Hill's Forty Eight Hours. See, you needed me a little more than you thought, huh, Mr. Kate? I decided you're as good a chance as I got. That shows you how desperate I am. This prison give out $400 suits. 
$957, and I wore this shit in. You're after a killer, not a bunch of hookers. Yeah, well, I got a reputation for looking real nice with the ladies, man. Maybe when we get out, I could take you to a couple of spots. We can get you dressed up, and we can go on a little pussy hunt, huh? Hey, I don't want to hear your jive. I already got that department taken care of. You got a lady, Kate? Yeah. You know, the generosity of women never ceases to amaze me, you know that? Hey, don't even try this shit, man. I don't work like this. No deal. Listen, we ain't got no deal. I own your ass. Ain't no goddamn way to start a partnership. Now, get this. We ain't partners. We ain't brothers and we ain't friends. I'm putting you down and keeping you down until Gans is locked up or dead. And if Gans gets away, you're going to be sorry you ever met me. I'm already sorry. This is, you know, your archetypal, may seem hackneyed now, buddy picture with two guys who have to you know pull together and do something they don't get along at first but together they learn about each other and you know ultimately themselves um but this film does it in uh quite a uh odd way there's no kind of uh hugging and and learning and to use that kind of seinfeldian expression there's no kind of coming together over you know a shared ideal the the characters in this uh this film uh, a cop played by Nick Nolte and a convict played by Eddie Murphy you have to work together to solve a crime um they come to understand each other by throwing down and kicking the living fuck out of each other that's that's definitely true they definitely hurt a lot of people mm. uh, in pursuit of their their shared goal but the uh, i think what really sets it apart from a lot of bloody comedies is that their differences are not they're not kind of skin deep, uh, except in the sense that one of them is a horrible racist, yeah. and the other is, and the other is is a black man. That is the you know that's the kind of the schism in it is not you know oh one's a slob and one's not <laughs> you know it is that one of them is just a, a virulently awful human being and the other guy is you know a criminal but an an unbelievably charismatic and entertaining one. Mm. And I think the depths of their differences is what lends the film. It's, it makes it a lot more impactful than the films that followed in its wake. Mm. I have to say that rewatching it, the racial politics are very spiky. Um, mm. Like, you know, uh, you'd expect some of that stuff to have been from a film made in the 50s, uh, not kind of from the 80s. Well, I think it's a nice inversion of, you know, the kind of the defiant ones and those kind of like uh, kind of liberal kind of wet dream pictures this is like the nightmarish opposite of that where two people who genuinely do hate each other um, have to kind of work it out. And uh, the scenes in which they do kind of gain each other's trust and work together are really funny and really well played. Yeah. It's a lot, it has a lot uh, uh, bigger effect than a lot of Stanley Kramer films do, Mm. which all kind of investigate the same sort of thing. And I, I do think that the, the racial politics, particularly the, the the things that Nick Nolte say, are so kind of horrible that it it, it gives the film it's, it, it makes the film even more impressive that it overcomes the fact that Nick Nolte's character is you know kind of irredeemably awful in a lot of ways. Mm. Yeah, um, it's Eddie Murphy's kind of screen debut proper, let's say, and we we talked about Eddie Murphy in the Beverly Hills Cop uh, episode, um, but it's kind of hard to explain to people who kind of who are like you know the kids these days that Eddie Murphy used to be a stand-up comedian first of all not only was he a stand-up comedian he was an electrifying stand-up comedian um and that 
uh, the 40 Hours is, is just a really, really brilliant example of transferring that kind of stage persona, that kind of motor mouth, fast talking, but incredibly charismatic stage persona into a film without it being, you know, the case of Adam Sandler or something like that. Let's have a loose plot, stick him in it, improvise, go. Yeah, absolutely. I think that you can really see that in uh, probably the highlight for me of the film, which is the scene where he goes into a redneck bar mm. and uses Nick Nolte's badge to pretend to be a cop. And you really see him dominate everyone in that bar through the sheer force of his personality and through his kind of motor mouth skills. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Just that, that, scene is, that scene is incredible and you know, features the kind of one of the all-time... Uh, great lines, I'm your worst nightmare, a nigger with a badge. And uh, as he's kind of shaking down all these uh, rednecks is, uh, yeah, quite something. Um, as it's a Walter Hill film, uh, it's also, you know, a pretty tidy action picture. There's some really great um, action sequences in it. The kind of, uh, um, kind of one of the better ones is with the, with the bodged uh, money exchange in a crowded train station. Um, he knows how to direct action scene. We've kind of uh, said that many times in the past, but yeah. Um, seems like an afterthought here with the chemistry between the two leads, but yeah, it's still a good uh, propulsive action thriller. It, it is. I think that that's one of the things that is most surprising about it now is that it's an Eddie Murphy film that isn't really a comedy. Mm. It's funny, but if you look in terms of the the way it's plotted and the way that you know it's structured, it is a, a thriller that just happens to have a very very funny central performance in much the same way that you know something like Lethal Weapon is. Uh, is a, a thriller and action film first, but it also has, you know, sort of a, a very funny central dynamic. This is this is kind of the blueprint for that sort of thing, where you get the action and the drama right first, and then just allow the actors to really sell the comedy in the relationship. So yeah, uh, four eight hours. Um, that and maybe kind of Midnight Run, which is a film that would have been awesome to include on this list, but isn't included on this list. Um, probably those great. Uh, two great kind of examples of how the buddy film didn't used to always be kind of hackneyed bullshit. Um, so check them out. Um, next film on the list, uh, we're going to uh, the rarely explored cinematic uh, diaspora of Newcastle uh, with Get Carter. What was bugging, Frank? He wanted me to leave Dave and marry him. But last Friday I told him it wouldn't work. Dave would have killed us both. He followed me home and kicked up a stink in the street. I had to tell Frank I couldn't see him anymore. They were getting too dodgy. That was Sunday. He said he'd kill himself. I was frightened what you might do. I don't believe you. Frank wasn't like that. I'm the villain in the family, remember? It's the truth. Um, it's kind of a very influential British gangster film is Get Carter um, but it's kind of rarely been matched um, in terms of just how bleak it is I guess yeah I mean a lot of the the imitators uh, they kind of borrow the, the, the look of the and a, a kind of the laconic uh, quality of Michael Caine's character um, Certainly, in, I think some of Guy Ritchie's films certainly owe a debt to it. Uh, mm -hmm. But there is, there's very few. I think only probably the Long Good Friday gets close in terms of an ending that is uh, that comes at a moment of seeming triumph that actually is kind of completely hopeless. 
Mm. Yeah. Um, it was kind of, Michael Caine did a lot of kind of knockabout films uh, in that kind of time frame, um, things like The Italian Job. Um, but Get Carter is, is a kind of really hard-edged performance. Uh, he's He's not, a particularly nice person, is he, Carter? No, not at all. It's very interesting considering that, like you say, it comes at the end after the 60s, after he has kind of epitomised a certain kind of very jovial, uh, swinging Britishness in stuff like, you know, uh, the Italian job, Alfie, um, that one that they re- that they remade with Colin Firth that was terrible. Um, uh, that was uh, remade last year. Gambit? Gambit, yeah. Yeah. He, yeah, Gambit, which was him and I believe Shirley MacLaine playing an Asian woman. Uh, oh, that film, don't, don't do that. that. That film, certain elements of that film do not hold up. But, you know, he <laughs> was he was a, a character who, an actor who became associated with a very particular persona. And while he has kind of a very wry sense of humour in Get Carter... It is employed to kind of devastating effect as he is a character who is uh, utterly kind of remorseless and who is completely dedicated to, uh, you know, getting the revenge that he, he deserves or feels he deserves. Mm. It very much has a kind of Western feel to it, doesn't it? A man returning to his hometown to find out what happened to his brother and then basically kind of trying to play rival gangs and gangsters off against each other and ultimately having to take things into his own hands. Yeah, it, it's very interesting seeing that played out in the in the northeast of England and realising that that kind of storytelling can play pretty much anywhere. You know, a film from this year called Calvary did a very similar sort of thing mm. uh, where, where essentially you take the, the basic structures and some of the basic character types and you, you know, you localise them and they still they still work. They're still, you know, it's really solid uh, storytelling techniques. Yeah, it's it's really nice to see the villains in in the film um, and the, kind of the way it was written being very naturalistic and not kind of these extravagant flamboyant monsters, just kind of ordinary people who also happen to be incredibly sinister. I think that's one of the things that really sets it apart from you know talking about a lot of the imitators, even um, a film that starred Michael Caine from a couple of years ago called Harry Brown, which I think mm. was posited as kind of the equivalent of you know Clint Eastwood had his 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 westerns that he made Unforgiven the Harry Brown was kind of uh, pitched as you know get Carter but now but the difference between those films other than the fact that Harry Brown's kind of terrible right-wing screed against Chavs and they is uh it is a it's it's a film that uh, it has these kind of villains that are absolute caricatures and don't for a single moment feel like people who could actually exist. Whereas, mm. and that just makes them cartoonish and you don't really care about anything that happens. Whereas in Get Carter, the villains, you know, like you said, they are sinister and they are a threat, but they also feel like people you could actually meet. And that makes them more terrifying because you can imagine them, you know, running into them in the real world. Hmm. Yeah, um, very kind of uncomfortable sex scene in uh, in this. Uh, well, kind of a phone sex scene um, that I can't believe no one has kind of done a kind of uh, edited version of that with Michael Caine talking dirty down the phone and cut it to someone else talking to, down the phone who isn't Britt Eklund touching herself. 
Yeah, I'm pretty sure they could. There must be scenes from the Batman films of like Bruce Wayne had taking a phone call that they could put it to. Yeah, I think they probably should do that. If you're out there, just do it. Um, we will take no credit, but full royalties. Um, <laughs> it was certainly grim up north in the 70s, wasn't it? Um, that film kind of makes no effort to kind of hide that. Again, using a lot of uh, non-actors and kind of local people as extras, the the kind of flavour is, well, it's kind of brown and horrible. Yeah, it taps into the same sort of vein of, of, of what uh, Ken Loach was really kind of doing at that same sort of time, depicting England, you know, under, uh, you know, post-war England uh, as all the industries were starting to collapse as, as places that are uh, very uh, kind of dark and unforgiving, uh, mm. but with none of the kind of working-class bonhomie that, you know, Loach would kind of pepper into his films. It's all very much kind of everyone in the North is miserable and they hate Londoners. So really, it's it's not much has changed. Yeah, it's a documentary, practically. <laughs> um, worth saying um, that the score for this film is one of my favourites. Um, uh, Roy Budd does this kind of really awesome jazz kind of score. With the, the main theme, Carter's theme, is... Uh, it's one of my favourite pieces of music. Um, and that was one of the things that they um, decided to keep for the remake, although they added a bit of kind of soft metal to it. Um, have you seen the remake of Get Carter, a film which also stars um, Michael Caine in a smaller part, but uh, uh, trades him out for Sylvester Stallone playing the lead role? Um, if you haven't, it's fucking terrible. I can kind of imagine that. Um... Yeah. He doesn't have a great track record of appearing in remakes of his own films, does mm. Michael Caine? There's that, there's Sleuth, which is infinitely oh. worse. Yeah. Um, yeah. He, Planet, he... Planet of the Apes, we'll just pretend he was in that. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just why they do it, I don't know, why? Well, you know, he's often said that he, when he makes a bad film, that he really just kind of looks at where they're shooting and decides if he would like to go there. Uh, so I think he he he, he uh, is more interested perhaps in the experience of filming than whether or not the material is up to his you know considerable talents. Mm, yeah. And he has the great line about Jaws four, which was um, someone said, "Have you seen it?" And he says, "No, but I've seen the house that it bought." <laughs> wow, wow. Um, it's kind of a funny one. That's the kind of the the attitude that I'd expect from someone like Christoph Lambert or Rutger Hauer. But Michael Caine, he can he can make a masterpiece, but then, by God, can he be a mercenary? <laughs> I think that's why he's lasted so long. It's like he mm. can get a, um, a Hannah and her sisters that will win him his Oscar, but he also is, you know, very, very aware of the practicalities of being a working actor and that there's a very... And he's had, like, fallow periods in his career where he didn't work very much, and I think he he just feels like he has to do... He has to work, otherwise... Uh, he'll just, everyone will forget that he exists and stop hiring him. Yeah, only like five years after his Oscar, I'm pretty sure he did On Deadly Ground with uh, Steven Seagal. Yeah, I think that, that that's about right, yeah. Mm, wow. Well, that, and, but that didn't ruin his career. He had another Oscar Somewhere. like a few years later. I just don't get it. Like, you know, the, you know the, I think there's a bit of uh, a philosopher, I can't remember who it was, so, you know, I'm going to sound really clever here. But he said, a great man straddles two extremes. Well, there you go. Michael Caine. <laughs> Jaws the Revenge, Get Carter, Hannah and Her Sisters, On Deadly Ground, 
working with, you know, you're taking phone calls from, uh, what's his face? Christopher Nolan one minute, you know, thinking he's, about doing an Uwe Boll film the next. He's he's the living embodiment of If by Rudyard Kipling. Yeah, absolutely. He can meet with hacks and at artists and treat those imposters both the same. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, God, we've got we've we've just said we've just quoted an unnamed philosopher, which I'm sure that's legit, and Rudyard Kipling. That is about as highbrow as we'll get today. Yeah, have we got something lowbrow to move on to? Uh, oh my word, we have. It's almost <laughs> like we planned this. Um, we're going to talk about uh, well, it's lowbrow, but it's a, it's a masterpiece. Uh, we're talking about Carl Reiner's The Jerk. The new phone book's here. The new phone book's here. Well, I wish I could get that excited about but. We talked earlier about uh, uh, Eddie Murphy kind of making that transition from stand-up to um, to films. Uh, in this film, Steve Martin makes the transition from being, you know, a truly kind of megastar stand-up, filling out, you know, auditoriums um, to what probably is stands alone as his kind of his greatest kind of film role. Yeah, and, and like Eddie Murphy, or even more so than Eddie Murphy, his the film kind of stands as a testament to his particular uh, persona as a stand-up because mm. not only you know is he the lead, but the film kind of takes its cue from his his particular brand of of humour, which is on the one hand it's got lots of very silly sight gags and very silly wordplay, but you know its title is also an oblique reference to Dostoevsky's The Idiot. Mm-hmm. So it's a film that kind of straddles the high and low divide in much the same way that his stand-up did, because his stand-up uh, would use kind of very silly puns and dumb props, but would also be, you know, very sophisticated in its use of anti-humour and its use of um, kind of uh, kind of postmodern techniques. And you can kind of see a lot of that stuff manages to show up in The Jerk, and it still feels like a cohesive uh, piece of work, despite the fact that it is kind of a film that goes in a lot of very different weird directions. Yeah, it is like I kind of mentioned it earlier about that modern technique of taking someone who's funny now and sticking them in a film and just saying, you know, go for it. And we see a lot of that with, with you know, Will Ferrell does it better than a lot of people, but people like Adam Sandler just kind of bluff their way through films. Um, this is kind of like that because Steve Martin's kind of got free reign, uh, but on the same time, it as a story, it's very kind of linear and progresses whilst it might take a tangled route to get from A to B. Um, there's, there's, it's more tightly structured than, than what you'd expect. I think that probably is Carl Reiner's influence because at that point, Carl Reiner had been working in, you know, comedy for about 20 years at that point. You know, he'd, he'd created TV shows, he had acted and he'd written and he'd, he'd done all these sort of things. I think he, brings a, a level of discipline to it that uh, ultimately helps and keeps things moving along. There's never a sense that the film is getting stuck on any one joke or any one part of the story. It just kind of zips along. And even though it's zipping along from, like, M. Uh, M. Emmett Walsh trying to uh, shoot Steve Martin with a sniper rifle, <laughs> hit, hitting a bunch of oil cans, and Steve Martin just going, 
he hates these cans. <laughs> uh, <laughs> even though uh, to like a genuinely sweet scene of him and Bernadette Peters singing, uh, singing a lovely song on a ukulele. Uh, Tonight you belong to me is the song. That's right? it. A lovely little song with what well, ukulele slash trumpet. Yeah, <laughs> it's the the film that features the most surprising trumpet solo ever. Yeah, it's it, it can zip between these all these disparate elements. Uh, because it never gets bogged down in any one thing, it, it, it never kind of feels self-indulgent. No, no. Um, you mentioned Carl Reiner's influences. The, the first film he, he worked with, uh, Steve Martin, on this is 1979, and they kind of went on a really great streak. Uh, they did Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, which is a film, for those of you who don't know, which kind of stitches Steve Martin into uh, clips from old film noir films. Um, we joked earlier about Get Carter, no one's done a mashup of the, the, the telephone scene uh, and someone else. That's pretty much all of what Dead Men, Pla- Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid is, but it's a joke that somehow doesn't get old. Um, the Man With Two Brains, which is fantastic, and also All Of Me, which is not quite perfect, but it's still pretty good. Uh, that's a pretty decent streak there. Yeah, it's a shame that they never really worked together after that, but you know, at least three of those films are amongst the most interesting and funny uh, comedies ever made. So, and, and All of Me has lots of good stuff to recommend it. So even though, you know, that their run was relatively brief, I think it, it produced a lot of really great work. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and yeah, Steve, I think The Jerk, along with uh, Caddyshack and a couple of other films we've got coming up, probably uh, uh, highlight this list's um, general levity quota um <laughs> because it is uh you know kind of gag per minute wise you know pretty good yeah it's, it's certainly got a lot more gags in it than the vanishing yes yes the vanishing or audition it's you know it's more of a laugh <laughs> than audition um so yeah um next up we are going to talk about um something altogether different something that is in the similar kind of laugh era as uh, Audition and The Vanishing. We're talking about um, the Spike Lee documentary, When the Levees Broke. So we were shooting some video, and we got to the train tracks, which are literally about 150 feet north of my house, and the MPs stop us. So they tell me, no one can cross here, quote-unquote. That was their exact words. You have to turn around. They told me I had to go this alternate route, like 15 minutes out of the way. Four miles out of the way. And then come back to my house. So they wouldn't let us go down to my house because the vice president's going down there. Did you see that? That convoy? Yeah. Dick Cheney was down the street talking to people. So I was like, come on, Jay, let's go down there. Jay was like, uh, I think I mean, we're this asking. This is literally what, 150 feet from your house? Yeah. I was thinking of what I was going to say because, you know, everything that we had personally been through and we'd been hearing reports of what was going on you know, in New Orleans and everything, and uh, just how completely incompetent the response was uh, to, to this disaster. Now, a little bit of a kind of contentious issue is when the levees broke actually a film, because it's a four-hour documentary, um, but it's actually an HBO production. Uh, I would definitely say that it is a film in the same way that, you know, say, Shoah is a film. Uh, or Berlin Alexander Platz is a film. It's a film made by a single director with a very consistent vision and it is conceived as a single work. It just so happens that it debuted on television. Mm. Yeah, um, which is 
probably where the only place they would have got it on because it's not something that you know I don't think many cinema chains would have been falling over themselves to show, um, which is a shame because it's amongst Spike Lee's best work. I mean, he, he has done documentaries before. Four Little Girls is is a famous one that I'd recommend. Um, but when the levies broke for him, I kind of like it because um, given that somehow sometimes Spike Lee is known for what can only be described as sledgehammer subtlety uh, when uh, driving home a message. Um, when the levies broke, uh, which deals with the fallout and the, the huge kind of mishandling of, of the, the post-Katrina collapse of, of New Orleans, essentially, um, what Spike Lee manages to do is keep it incredibly angry and incredibly vitriolic, but also kind of maintain a bit of cool about it. Would It could have been very easy given the access he has to the key people involved and especially the key people making very poor decisions and just berate them. He kind of does the give them enough rope technique um, uh, with all the people he has access to. And, you know, I'm so pleased because, you know, it could have gone quite differently. Uh, Yeah, I think the uh, kind of overwhelming sadness and tragedy of the of the story has probably played a big part in that. You know, I think it's, it's something that it's, it's very easy to be angry about, but that you you don't want to be kind of exploitative of. Mm. And so I think he, in making it, he probably had no problem maintaining his righteous fury over how the whole thing was mismanaged and, you know, the, the, the death and destruction uh, that resulted, but that he wanted to be in the same way that he he does something with um, four little girls where, he wants to treat the subjects with respect whilst maintaining his own kind of personal anger. And I think that creates a great tension in the film between how awful everything is and this kind of tone that remains kind of just, just distance enough uh, to, to be objective about it, but still not lose sight of what an appalling situation it was. Mm, and, and some of the people that are talking have, have kind of had people die in this kind of, tragic series of events not kind of two or three years previous and for a lot of the people they interview which you know includes uh kind of now quite famous residents of, of new orleans people like wendell pierce from the wire um it's still very raw and he manages to capture that quite kind of tenderly especially when you get the kind of stories of people returning to their homes and finding kind of bloated corpses and things like that or their their entire lives destroyed uh it's amazing how how well they managed to get across those stories without it being uh, really, like you say, really exploitative or to feel like they're really hammering home. It is just people recounting in very kind of clear, concise, but very raw ways how, what, the many ways in which this tragedy has affected them personally. But it also lays out, you know, the in, in kind of very great and compelling detail all the failures, both in the failure to maintain the levies and the way in which the New Orleans was essentially left defenceless from uh, from the, the unfolding disaster that a lot of people could have seen coming, and the the ways in which it was completely uh, mishandled afterwards. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. and it it does the kind of the personal and the political very well. Yeah, absolutely, and it's a very emotionally draining film. Um given kind of some of the horrifying details that people recount and just 
that overwhelming sadness of, of a tragedy that could so easily have been detected slash avoided. Um, and, a, you know, a city and communities literally just kind of wiped off a map, which is, you know, horrifying. Um, the film is kind of helped along by an absolutely brilliant kind of haunting score. Um, kind of talking about scores quite a lot today. Terence Blanchard does the score and it's a, a bit of a mixture actually from music from Spike Lee's other films and stuff composed um, for the film itself. Um, plus there's also kind of performances by a lot of the kind of musical artists from New Orleans as well, which is uh, kind of awesome. So there is an element of hope in there as well. And it kind of talks about people and uh, kind of bands from New Orleans using that to kind of try and kind of uh, raise awareness and kind of improve the situation uh, as much as you can when your city's just been levelled. Yeah, I think that uh, one of the things that is but a great strength of Spike Lee as a filmmaker and also kind of his detriment is he's someone who overreaches an awful lot. He's someone who kind of tries to encompass as much as he can in a single film on, on a particular subject. And sometimes in something like, you know, Do the Right Thing, that works, or, or Malcolm X, that really, really works well. Uh, sometimes it results in stuff like She Hate Me, or, or sometimes it, it kind of mars otherwise great films, such as um, She's Got a Habit, where there's that incredibly unfortunate rape scene towards the end. Um, mm. you, you know, he's someone who is so kind of br- uh, brimming with ideas and energy that sometimes he can get ahead of himself and, and maybe doesn't check the quality control. I, but I think that when the levees broke, the, the subject of Katrina and the effect on New Orleans is so huge that it is perfectly suited to that approach. He just kind of picks from everything in trying to represent this city, what happened to it, what happened to its culture, how it could hopefully come back, you know, uh, and a a director without kind of that overreaching vision and that desire to kind of push himself probably wouldn't have been able to make a film as as kind of uh, overwhelming as when the levees broke. Mm, Absolutely. Um, I would uh, suggest that the film um, is probably the best primer you could ever want if you want to watch the the HBO series uh, Treme, mm. um, because it really does give you a background of what's going on, and you know, you know, kind of lets you know who FEMA is and who Mayor Nagan is and what all the different districts are called. Because um, I have to say, if I hadn't watched uh, uh, when the levees broke, Treme would have been absolutely baffling a lot of the time. Yeah, I think that it. Another great thing about it is it is incredibly informative about being dry. It does fill you in on a a situation that was very complex and had a lot of actors and a lot of different things going on. And Mm. it it presents them all in a way which is very kind of clear and very, uh, but still very kind of poetic and and incredibly cinematic. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, Even though the destruction that it kind of um, depicts is horrifying and, on a scale that you can kind of barely imagine the way it's captured cinematically is, is quite beautiful. Um, which makes it even more heartbreaking. Um, so there you go. Spike Lee's when the levees broke, um, no let up in the bleakness, uh, in this middle stretch. Um, <laughs> we're talking about, uh, Sydney Lumet's fail safe. This fail safe. The shattering worldwide bestseller explodes with suspense on the motion picture screen. A bestseller that stuns from the very first scene 
and builds to the last word in suspense. Failsafe will have you sitting on the brink of eternity. Failsafe will have you sitting on the brink of eternity. Failsafe. Um, pitched, uh, we talked about Cutter's Way a few weeks ago, and we talked about that's essentially a kind of deadly serious version of um, The Big Lebowski. Well, Failsafe is the deadly serious version of Doctor Strangelove. Yeah, that's probably the reason why its legacy has not been uh, as kind of, it's probably not as, as well preserved as it should have been, because it mm. has the misfortune of coming out the same year and being on the same subject of a film that is is generally considered to be uh, kind of a masterpiece and the definitive film about nuclear paranoia. Failsafe does the same sort of thing, but it treats it in a in much more serious way uh, and a, a much more genuinely affecting way because of how sort of deadly serious it is. But, you know, there's no... There's, there's few moments in it that you can kind of point to like as... as uh, as perfectly... Yeah, as, as perfectly sums up the period the time as the line, gentlemen, you can't fight in here, this is the war room. Mm. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, um, for those who don't know, um, who haven't seen Doctor Strangelove, um, but yeah, the film, the failsafe depicts uh, a kind of catastrophic failure in, in the kind of nuclear defence system, um, uh, but does it from the point of view of uh, essentially the... Um, uh, the kind of US military personnel who have to deal with the failure of um, nuclear alert points. Um, so they think that a failsafe, which means that they think that a bomb has been dispatched to be dropped on Russia and they are in real time um, trying to kind of figure out what to do and how to do it. Um, it's incredibly tense as a film. And it's uh, Sidney Lumet's films. Obviously, we talked about him a lot on the podcast and talks about The Pawnbroker. Um, this is another one of his that just seems to be forgotten about behind a lot of his other films. Uh, yeah, especially which is especially strange because it features you know Henry Fonda, who was his and starred in uh, Twelve Angry Men, which is kind of his one of his kind of more celebrated masterpieces. Mm. So you think that you know any subsequent film they worked on would get as much attention, um, and, and especially because like that film is a film that like uh, Twelve Angry Men, it really ratchets up the tension as the the film progresses and as uh, the scale of the disaster and the uh, what the potential solutions are uh, become apparent and you kind of realize how awful a decision the president played by Fonda uh, has to make mm. yeah um it was remade um kind of fairly recently say this nearly kind of 15 years ago um they did a live tv version of it uh george clooney did it with um uh what's his face carter from er noah wiley and mm. uh, richard dreyfus uh the only, only members i can remember being in it um but yeah it's certainly that kind of film that lends itself to um being done live or being a play um exceptionally well yeah although i think that you 
making it now, you lose a lot of the, the sense of urgency over it because there's less of a sense now of this is a thing that could actually happen. You know, it's not mm. something that couldn't happen, but obviously it seemed much more likely in sort of 90, in the early 1960s than it does now. Um, and that's one of the things that lends it a, a great, it, it's, it's kind of sense of peril. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the film, the original film was released during the Cuban Missile Crisis. So uh, that's kind of around the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis. So I can imagine that something like that would be kind of deeply terrifying. Yeah, I think uh, the timing could have been better. Mm. I think I think that was probably the the first kind of marketing meeting uh, after the film opened. It's like, yeah, we could have chosen a better release window. Mm. Yeah, it's like Let's Be Cops has just gone down in America. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, in the wake of the kind of Ferguson riots and everything. Very very poor timing. Uh, they weren't to know, but yeah, the movie's probably shitty anyway. But un- <laughs> unlike that film, Failsafe is um, you know a really great film, really tense exercise. Um, and, you know, uh, a very, very kind of like lean and economical thriller. And one of the few opportunities you'll get to see Larry Hagman uh, in a proper film. Uh, you know, well, now he's dead. So <laughs> definitely not now. Uh, he's not going to be next in line for a Quentin Tarantino style uh, career renaissance. Yeah, I think that it is uh, it's a film that definitely needs to be seen and to be uh, understood in the context in which it was made you know to really get the full effect of it but just as a you know as kind of like a chamber piece as as a, as a a morality play you know a kind of you know what would you do in this situation it's uh, you know it's kind of pretty much second to none really because the, the stakes are the highest they could possibly be and the is one of those situations where there are no good options so it's about choosing the least worst yeah and that's the thing about the the stakes of films like this and Doctor Strangelove. Um, they are, you know, as high as they can be. Like people say, if anyone asked, like, you know, what's the blackest comedy of all time, you'd have to say Doctor Strangelove because everybody in the world at the end dies. <laughs> Which is, that's about as black as, as a comedy can be, right? Yeah. Um, you know, unless you're getting into the kind of the Freeburg Seltzer uh for you know your date movies and stuff like that but that's yeah, that, different that, that's that, so crushing in a different way yeah absolutely in fact it's worse than everyone in the world dying um <laughs> but yeah anyway because if, if everyone died they won't wouldn't be around to make films no they'd do death movie uh a film about everyone in the world dying anyway i can't believe approaches. yeah well, i can't believe we've gone from uh failsafe to date movie in uh about three minutes uh <laughs> terrible of us um, but yes, fail safe. Um, it's annoyingly hard to get hold of, but if you can do so, it is a very choice. Um, uh, next up, uh, we're talking um, about another kind of lean economical thriller. Um, we're talking about Bad Day at Black Rock. Your friend's a very argumentative fellow. Sort of unpredictable, too. Got a temper like a rattlesnake. That's me all over. I'm half horse, half alligator. You mess with me and I'll kick a lung out of you. What do you think of that? No comment. You know, talking to you is like pulling teeth. You wear me out. You're a yellow-bellied chaplain, am I right or wrong? You're not only wrong, you're wrong at the top of your voice. You don't like my voice? I think your friend is trying to start trouble. Why ever would he want to do that? 
Well, I don't know. Maybe he thinks that if he needles me enough, I might crack. I might even fight back. And then either he or your other ape sitting over there could beat me to death and cop a plea of self-defense. I don't think that'll be necessary. You're so scared now, you're probably drowning your own sweat. Um, for those of you who don't know, a 1955 film, uh, kind of kind of a western, really, uh, about Sp- Spencer Tracy, who uh, is a war veteran, he a uh, World War II war veteran, um, and in great western tradition, he kind of goes to a town, a no-name town in the middle of nowhere, um, uh, trying to find out what happened uh, to the father of someone he served with in the war. Um, and what we get is... You know, for a film made in 1955, very, very progressive in terms of its racial politics, um, very, very progressive in terms of its uh, a kind of, well, view of kind of like small town America and post-war America. Yeah, it, it deals very uh, explicitly in particular with the relationships between uh, Americans and Japanese Americans, which... Uh, is a subject that still isn't really dealt with that much in America these days. Mm. Uh, the the story of the Japanese internment camps is one of those things that people seem uh, very surprised about, the fact that the American government locked up hundreds of thousands of its own citizens because uh, they happen to be of Japanese ancestry. And uh, it's, it's a really shocking and shameful part of American history that isn't talked about enough. So it's really strange to see a film in made in you know ten years after the war that deals uh, kind of metaphorically. You know they don't talk about the internment camps in the film, but definitely you know engages with that kind of underlying sense of of you know racism in a very kind of powerfully evocative way. Mm. Yeah, the, the person that uh, Spencer Tracy is looking for um, is a Japanese farmer called Tomoko who. Uh, he served with his son in uh, Italy in, in kind of World War Two, and his son died and he wanted to just return and give this medal to his father. But he kind of comes home to find a burnt out farm and no Tomoko and uh, has to kind of try and solve what's happened. But he kind of meets with resistance um, from the townspeople who are composed entirely of brilliant actors. <laughs> There's Ernest Borgnheim and Lee Marvin and Robert Ryan They're basically, and uh, Walter Brennan. It's basically like... Lee Strasberg's uh, theatre score just kicked out into this small town, um, <laughs> and you've got you know uh, you know just all these kind of great faces and people. Um, but it's a very terse, a very hard edged. Uh, I use that phrase a lot in these films. I, in these uh, podcasts, I probably should uh, get a thesaurus or something. Um, but yeah, it's like a film which you know a kind of woman is shot in cold blood in the back. Um, and, you know, a man is set on fire. Um, it, it it doesn't feel like a film from the fifties. No, there's also a, a kind of David Lynch esque focus on the sinisterness of small time America, mm. because when this guy arrives on like the only train that goes through town, uh, and just kind of like walks and walks around, everyone's kind of very friendly to see him. But as soon as they start to suspect that he has. Um, he, he has. He's going to kind of start stirring things up and revealing secrets. Uh, everyone gets very frosty towards him, and you know, there's that kind of passive aggressiveness of like, you know, maybe you should leave town and be aggressive aggressiveness when everyone starts shooting at him. <laughs> um, but you know, it's it, it handles that very well, and you like you say, in a lot of ways, it feels you know, my, uh, years ahead of its time. Mm. 
and it's it's really kind of um, beautifully composed for and shot in CinemaScope and um, I kind of rewatched it recently and, and one of the things that I noticed was that like there's a lot of scenes where you know five or six people just talk but they do it in the street kind of in this with this huge kind of expanse of American wilderness behind them that's just kind of rolling out it's it's for uh, dialogue shots between like five or six people it's really immaculately kind of composed and put together the way they kind of move it around but keep everyone in shot is really beautifully done um and it kind of makes that kind of landscape part of the character it's a very isolated kind of town in the middle of nowhere um but uh one of the things that's great about this film is that like it lodged itself in my memory quite uh uh kind of bizarrely because i first saw this um when i was suffering from uh incredibly uh debilitating bout of the flu uh, and I don't mean flu like, you know, man flu. I was like properly, properly ill for like two weeks. Um, and I was kind of kind of in and out of kind of fever dream consciousness and uh, kind of two o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon. Um, uh, this film was on and I watched it and I kind of stayed conscious for the whole like, hour and a half of, of whatever, you know, however long it is, what it was on. And it just still stayed lodged in my mind and uh, kind of details were uh, incredibly... Uh, coherent, even though I was suffering from perhaps the worst bout of flu that the man has ever experienced. <laughs> I, I, I think that's a testament to its uh, its efficiency. You know, it, John Sturgis, who directed it, it I think he's probably best known for kind of directing more epic scale films in terms of you know The Great Escape and The Magnificent Seven, which are all kind of very big, lavish films. But you know, uh, Bad Day at Black Rock, it's under ninety minutes. It looks, it has a very big scope to it, but the the story is very uh, lean and very keenly focused on exploring what it needs to explore. I think the the sheer pace of it and the fact that you know Spencer Tracy is was was a wonderful uh, actor, and particularly when it came to depicting uh, kind of very terse but very morally forthright men. Uh, it really uh, it, it really benefits from his presence as anchoring this very kind of rapid paced and, and kind of righteously angry uh, uh, thriller. Mm. And it is righteously angry as well. Mm. It's uh, it really doesn't hold back from that. Um, so yeah, um, bad day at Black Rock. Uh, our next film is a documentary, but a documentary like no other. Um, we are talking about Cleo Barnard's The Arbor. I can remember Lorraine setting the bedroom on fire. Uh, and I were only young then, I was probably only about five. But still to this day, if you talk about it to me, aunties and stuff, and they all say, we don't know which one of yous it was. And I'm like, it won't be, because I can actually remember it to this day. She was messing with mat uh, matches and the mattress caught fire. You know, back then you didn't have the double glazing and stuff that you get now. Um, you know, the house was horrible, no carpets, no central eating, locked in a room with no door handle. Um, why, Ed? Why is The Arbor like uh, no other documentary? Uh, well, it's it shot in a, a very unique way where um, the dialogue is all uh, recordings of interviews with uh, real people who involved it, who lived in this council estate and uh, knew a, a a young woman who was a kind of a, a young playwright, you know, wrote uh, uh, Ted and Sue and Bob. Wait, what's it called? 
Rita Sue and Bob too. Rita Sue and Bob too. Um, you know, so she wrote these kind of social realist uh, plays and, and gained a lot of attention. But the visuals are actors who are lip syncing to the the uh, the interview, but not acting it out. Just kind of standing or, or, or walking, or just kind of acting within the, these kind of spaces that recreate the actual spaces from this woman's life, and it creates an effect that is both you know really emotionally powerful because you're listening to these kind of uh, very raw and emotionally honest interviews but then you have the artificiality of the way it's presented mm. yeah, yeah we're talking about the the playwright andrea dunbar uh, who like you say uh, kind of was best known for rita sue and bob too uh, but a playwright from literally the worst place uh, <laughs> in bradford you can think of um the council estate um kind of was kind of had a couple of kids very early um and uh, yeah but also but her plays were commissioned and performed at like the Royal Court Theatre um, and yeah she was kind of this protege of, of the of the kind of um, the theatre scene but died kind of tragically young um, and I think with with something like this with a story as unique as this and a kind of a talent as unique as this uh, having uh, telling that story in, in in a kind of more interesting way than just doing kind of talking heads and using archive um, it's pretty vital really. Yeah I think it's a great tribute to her work in that uh, you know, she wrote a lot of, she kind of took things uh, from her life and, you know, people she knew and put them uh, into plays. So I think the idea of, of recreating her life by, you know, taking the words of people she knew and their stories about her and then presenting them in the form of actors feels conceptually like a very kind of uh, true way of, of kind of uh, honouring her work and her life. Mm. Um, yeah, and this is this is um, uh, someone who had had a, a pretty kind of uh, eventful life, could you say, kind of alcoholism, kids. Uh, she died aged twenty nine of a brain hemorrhage. Her, her daughter was uh, convicted of, I think, murdering a child. Who basically kind of injected a kid with methadone. Um, and and the fo- the film tends to, uh, actually the focus of the film is that relationship between the daughter. Um, and um, and Andrea Dunbar, um, but yeah, it's it's a film that like marks out as well Cleo Bernard as um, you know uh, alongside someone like Lynn Ramsey uh, as the kind of one of the kind of vanguard uh, of, of kind of new British female directors. Yeah, her her second film, uh, The Selfish Giant, which is uh, based on uh, an Oscar Wilde. Uh, short story was is is really great that's that was kind of a, a really celebrated film from last year in which she kind of applies the kind of the the kind of rawness of that to a a a, a kind of very literate source material so it's kind of an interesting kind of inversion of this where she's taking uh stories that are kind of rooted in kind of earthy working class naturalism and then presenting them in a highly stylized and kind of evocative way Mm. Yeah, it's it's truly unlike anything you've ever seen, and um, uh, missed. I think you missed the cut of being uh, uh, listed in our our very first top ten films of the year back when we started this podcast. Um, well, I hadn't actually seen it at that point, so that's probably why. Um, but um, if you can find it and dig it out, then it is um, an absolutely remarkable uh, piece of cinema, and it's you know given 
how small some of her work feels, especially someone like Rita Sue and Bob too feels very kind of provincial. Um, uh, this, uh, the Arbor, feels uh, much bigger than that. I, I think it's it's an absolute kind of masterpiece and, and one of the very clear signs that we're in a very interesting age for kind of documentary filmmaking where people are really playing with the form and pushing it kind of to the limits of what you can do. And, and this is kind of one of the most striking examples of, of someone doing that, looking at documentary as a form of filmmaking and trying to kind of uh, break it, essentially. Mm, absolutely. And uh, break it, she does. Um, well done, Cleo Barnard. Um, our penultimate film this week, we actually kind of paid it a little bit of lip service uh, a few weeks ago um, when we were talking about Miller's Crossing. Um, but we're talking about our final entry uh, involving the Coen brothers. Uh, we're talking about a serious man. With all respect, Mr. Park, I don't think it's that. Yes. No, it would be a culture clash if it were the custom in your land to bribe people for grades. Yes. So... You're saying it is the custom? No, this is a defamation. Crown for lawsuit. Let me get this straight. You're threatening to sue me for defaming your son? Yes. But it would... Is this man bothering you? Is he bothering me? No. I, uh... Look, if it were defamation, there would have to be someone I was defaming him too. Or I, all right, I let's keep it simple. I could pretend the money never appeared. That's not defaming anyone. Yes, and uh, passing grade. Passing grade. Yes. Or you'll sue me for taking money. So he did leave the money. This is defamation. It doesn't make sense. Either he left the money, or he didn't. Please, accept the mystery. Um, a canny ploy by the Coen brothers to make a film which many kind of think of as their career highlight, you know, No Country for Old Men, a you know, multi-Oscar winning film. Um, a canny move to follow it with something that I'd argue is even better than that. Um, a kind of a quite a quiet, um, yeah, um, very kind of dark comedy, a kind of suburban comedy, um, very understated following... Uh, uh, kind of a, a, a lecturer um, through um, a, a kind of a, a patchy divorce and a, a failed um, tenure application and bribery and all these kind of weird things that can only happen behind the veil of kind of suburban normality. Yeah, I, I think it's the sort of film that uh, that they would have made sort of anyway. But I think it's particularly interesting that they made it after. Uh, no Country for Old Men and Burn After Reading, which at the time were, I think, their two biggest commercial hits they'd ever had. Um, and, we, uh, and, and then followed up with True Grit, which is far and away the biggest hit they ever had. Mm. Uh, but, you know, that they kind of retreated from the, that kind of very big, very broad, appealing kind of stuff to something that's incredibly uh, insular in that it deals very explicitly with uh, sort of the notion of Jewish identity, um, particularly as, as it relates to Midwestern Jews, which is uh, what uh, Joel and Ethan Cohen, you know, are. They're, they're a couple of, of, of Jewish guys who grew up in the Midwest, kind of away from what are thought of of the kind of the main kind of uh, Jewish centres in the US. Uh, and, and it kind of explores this particular subculture and 
you know, the question of what it is to be a good or serious man within kind of the Jewish faith when, you know, you're just a, a professor at a kind of a college and you're, you've tried to live right, but your life just still falls apart anyway. Oh, yeah, it's um, very much um, a kind of period piece set in the 60s where this kind of almost quite reserved suburban life is uh, at odds with that kind of countercultural um, kind of movement, um, uh, the kind of the post-Vietnam or kind of set during Vietnam, isn't it, the film? Mm. Um, it's, it's, it, it kind of reminded me very much of that Ang Lee film, The Ice Storm. Yeah, it, it definitely is kind of about the unseen kind of schism that's happening in America before the counterculture really exploded in the late 60s, but when it was still bubbling under. So, you know, you see him kind of becoming obsessed with the woman next door and uh, smoking weed and, you, you know, his kids obsessed with Jefferson Airplane. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you have all of these things that are kind of signifiers of the time, but they take place in an area of America where the counterculture has not had any kind of uh, significant impact at that point you know it's just this kind of very kind of nondescript suburb Uh, and so it's very interesting that that plays out and there's also these really interesting um kind of spiritual elements which come through in his series of meetings with uh various rabbis (laughs) who offer him spiritual advice in the, the form of very obtuse uh uh fables which uh, don't seem to offer him any sort of help, uh, and I think it's it's it's, it's just a, a very interesting film about Judaism and also the uh, d- just the role that religion plays in the lives of people who don't really understand what religion is meant to be. Mm. It, it is. Um, it starts with a Jewish folk tale, which is set in kind of uh, the kind of eighteen hundreds, I believe. Uh, even though I read that it's a made-up folktale. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a very Cohen thing to do. Um, and then, I read, essentially, the, the whole film is a Jewish fable. Um, and someone, uh, I read kind of uh, a review where essentially kind of pointed out that um, A Serious Man is the story of Job, uh, mm-hmm. but without the levity, <laughs> without the relief <laughs> at the end, um, which is pretty much spot on because... Uh, uh, Michael Stolberg, who plays the main character, um, yeah, doesn't catch too many breaks. No, everything in his life completely falls apart, and he doesn't really understand it. It is kind mm. of like, like Job, in that you know these awful things happen, and he doesn't understand why. But he never, it, unlike Job, who kind of it reaffirms his faith, he just completely doubts it at every step of the way. Uh, I think it's very interesting to see the Coen brothers kind of take on that kind of story and apply their own kind of absurdist viewpoint to it in much the same way they do when they, you know, they adapted the, uh, the Odyssey and turned it into a brother, where art thou? They kind mm. of look at these very, uh, these kind of legendary stories and then kind of put their own unique spin on them. And I think that this one is very interesting in that it turns what is meant to be a very kind of inspirational, uh, story from the, from the, the, the old Testament and, uh, makes it into something that's actually kind of bleak and uh well, while still being very very funny uh really kind of unnerving mm, yeah great ending as well kind of a uh a very kind of opaque ending um that is uh pretty biblical in itself um but a serious man uh a film that kind of is often slips between the cracks of the cohen's canon we talked about them having quite a sizable canon um um and this kind of but i think i i prefer if this was talked about more often 
um, because it is really rather good. Okay, uh, we come to the end. Our last film uh, we're going to talk about, um, and that is um, Kenneth Lonergan's You Can Count On Me. You mind if I ask you a personal question? I don't know. Do you like it here? I mean, in Scottsville? Yeah. Why? I don't know. My friends are here. I like the scenery. I don't know. I know, I know. It's just so... There's nothing to do here. Yes, there is. No, there isn't, man. It's narrow. It's dull. It's a dull, narrow town full of dull, narrow people who don't know anything except what things are like right around here. They have no perspective whatsoever, no scope. They might as well be living in the 19th century because they have no idea what's going on. And if you try and tell them that, they want to fucking kill you. What are you talking about? I have no idea. You're a good kid. Kenneth Lonergan. Um... I think the only filmmaker on this list who has a hundred percent of his back catalogue featuring in our list. Um, this is his debut, um, a very kind of uh, understated, quiet family drama, really about a brother and sister reconnecting. Um, but there's much more to it than that. Yeah, it makes for a very interesting contrast between this and Margaret, his other film, uh, because it's obviously a lot more uh, focused. But yeah, it's it's uh, about. It deals with this in this very simple story of uh, a brother and sister played by Mark Ruffalo and uh, Laura Linney kind of reconnecting after years apart. He's a bit of a drifter. She is um, settled in the town where they grew up after their parents were killed in a car crash. And uh, he kind of re-enters their, their life and, you know, kind of starts to connect with her son played by one of the Culkins. I want to say Kieran. Mm, I was going to say Rory, but I think we'll go Kieran. I think I think Rory is the youngest, so I think right. he would have been too young. Keep but, talking; I'll use the internet to solve this problem. Okay, uh, yeah, and and but it's uh, it's about the kind of the weight of the past, you know, the, their past relationship and how they uh, come to terms with who they grew up to be, uh, and the impact that their parents' death still has over them over the years. Uh, it's also about the kind of uh, crushing nature of normality in the form of, you know, Laura Linney's life, which seems to have gone on kind of uninterrupted for years, just working in a, in a small bank in this town, uh, seemingly in the middle of nowhere. And like Mark Ruffalo's appearance coincides with her getting a new boss in the form of uh, Matthew Broderick, who uh, she ends up uh, kind of forming a very close relationship with. And, you know, there's this kind of sense of, uh, her having kind of fallen into a rut and not realising that maybe there's more she could be doing with her life. Mm. And I think the film kind of explores all of these things while still being a really effective, uh, a, a really uh, affecting and really funny kind of drama about these two people getting to know each other after years apart. Um, just want to say it's Rory Culkin, oh, so it's suck Rory. it, suck it. Right. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, next week we'll be having another Culkin-based uh, debate. An idea for a running quiz, which Culkin <laughs> is in this. Um, but yeah, it's uh, very affecting. It's very kind of, uh, like I said, kind of very understated. Um, but I think the the two performances, central performances, Laura Linney especially, and also Mark Ruffalo, that's kind of their career work, really, isn't it? 
in a lot of ways it is. I think it's it's probably the best use of their contrasting styles because Mark Ruffalo, you know, he's always had a very kind of loose energy to him. He's always been someone who kind of uh, has a lot of kind of energy that's kind of shooting in all directions, and it's it's something that that works really well here because it's uh, against someone like Laura Linney who is very kind of composed and very uh, very focused in a kind of a Meryl Streep sort of way. Mm-hmm. You know, she's someone who gives who who acts in a very sort of classical definition of what acting is, and sometimes that can uh, be to the detriment of the films that she's in if the film doesn't call for it. But I think here uh, it really it really works because they contrast against each other so kind of perfectly, and it does make the moments when she kind of loses it uh, and, and she kind of loses that composure feel a lot more uh, effective. Mm. Uh, it's a film which is manages to be very life affirming and and uh, hugely uplifting without being kind of trite, mm. um, and it could quite easily have become very soapy. The film, given its setup, but um, Lonergan uh, kind of uh, keeps it, you know, well at bay. Yeah, I think it, it probably helps that he kind of came from uh, theatre. I believe he was a, a playwright before he moved into uh, making films, and I think that the that kind of cuts down what could have been a lot of sentimentality. Uh, I think coming from sort of a live uh, performance probably really helps him kind of bring something more raw and kind of elemental to the story that stops it from being kind of uh, sort of indie by numbers. Mm. Yes, it could very much have been indie by numbers. Um, but yeah, it's um, a beautiful piece of work um, that I would heartily recommend. And um, just waiting for Kenneth Lonergan to do something else now. What's he, what's he going to do next? If at actually, all. They actually did announce that he was uh, he's working on a third film. Wow. With uh, Matt Damon playing a guy who returns to his kind of New England hometown after the death of his brother and gets sidled, uh, saddled with his young nephew. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I, I've seen it described as being kind of like, almost like, uh, you know, a goodwill hunting, but now he's in the Robin Williams role. Right. Which I think is a, an interesting kind of inversion. But I did joke on Twitter that, you know, it's going to shoot in the fall and it will be released sometime after the heat death of the universe. So we'll have, <laughs> to, um, we'll have to see when exactly that one rears its head. But uh, I'm very, very excited to see what he does because, you know, he's, he's got 100% success rate with me. And uh, I, I, I do really want him to continue to work and to, to overcome the artistic success but commercial disaster that was Margaret. Yeah. I mean, he's uh, um, someone who will probably release the film, like you said, like it will shoot soon, but be uh, released in, you know, decades time. But uh, you do know that it'll be very tightly edited by Martin Scorsese. <laughs> um, yeah, some, someone will come in and save it. Yeah, hopefully. Um, by then it will be like, I don't know, some young punk kid director. Xavier Dolan or something will be his will be his patron by the time that the apocalypse dawns. Um, yes, Mr. Lonergan's, uh, you can count on me. Uh, like I say, 100% of his films in the list, um, which probably makes him the most acclaimed director of all time, um, statistically. Um, yeah, that was uh, part seven, everyone. Um, if you've enjoyed uh, this part and uh, the six other parts we've enjoyed previous and all the other shows we do, uh, then please do uh, find us on iTunes, subscribe, review, like it, find us on Facebook, on the Twitter, we're also on Stitcher Smart Radio, you can find us on there. Um, I'm sure you guys can negotiate that. 
labyrinth of modern technology um, and get us listened to. Um, so yeah, uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks. We're going to have a little bit of a break before we record our next part. Um, and But we assure you, we will be done by uh, uh, December, we promise. Um, so until our next episode, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. <laughs> <laughs>